Amen. Thank you, Jackie. And once again, for the worship team, for a beautiful job. Jackie's going to stay with us for a minute because I have a special assignment for Jackie. And we'll get there in a minute. I want to speak this morning on spiritual warfare and compromise. How do they relate? We are in a constant form of spiritual warfare, whether you like to admit it or not, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, the moment you became a Christian, you became a warrior. The moment that you said, Jesus, come into my life, you created an enemy of your life, and that's the devil. And uh, we are in Christian warfare in our lives, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, not to give you a downer, but he's never leaving you alone. Just so you know, we are in Christian warfare. And if we're going to be a victorious warrior, we need to understand that and be very much in admission of that fact. In fact, if you don't want a battle, if you're just not, if you're not a fighter in this regard, then the only way you're going to get out of the battle is just to give up your spiritual life. Because the enemy of our souls is not willing to let one person get into heaven without a fight. The enemy is not willing to let one person get into heaven without a fight. So understand that if you're going to be a Christian, you are going to have to fight the spiritual battle. If you don't want to fight, then lay down your life and be defeated. That's biblical, and we're going to talk about that. But, you know, we used to sing, and I know that this is interesting, because we used to sing a little song in Sunday school called Onward Christian Soldiers. And we used to sing that, and, you know, that was a teaching thing for us. We, I want to sing that song with me this morning. That's Jackie's special assignment. So why don't you stand with me, and let's sing Onward Christian Soldiers as our battle cry for spiritual warfare. You can march around if you want. Amen. Yeah. Do it. Do the motions if you want. may be seated. If that little brought back some memories of maybe some Sunday school days. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18 will be the text that we'll start with this morning, and it talks to us about warfare. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when you, I'm sorry, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, and with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So we're told very plainly here in this set of scriptures that we are in warfare. Now, I personally am a middle child, and I personally I don't like confrontation, and personally I don't like to be in warfare, but I am. I am in warfare, and if I'm going to be a victorious man, then I have to understand that I have to take my place in God's spiritual army, and I need to go into warfare against my spiritual foe. And understand my spiritual foe is not man. 
my spiritual foe is the spiritual powers of this dark world. And that's the same enemy that you face as well. We face the same enemy, and it is not man. The enemy that we face is a spiritual force, and it's dark, and it's strong, and it's evil. And we need to understand that. If this wasn't serious warfare, we wouldn't be instructed to put on armor. God isn't treating us like little children, and we're not playing cops and robbers here. This isn't a game of cowboys and Indians. This is the real deal, folks. This is life and death. Lives are at stake. Spiritual people, spiritual lives are at stake. This is real warfare. Therefore, my response and your response better be pretty serious about it. I better take this seriously if I'm not going to be the casualty. Because warfare requires casualty. If there's no casualties, there's no warfare. What war have you ever heard won without something dying? Warfare is not fun and games. Warfare is serious stuff. One of the foes has to die. Either the spiritual power of this dark world that's against my spiritual man, or my spiritual man dies. This is a fight to the death. This is not playground battlegrounds. This is all-out atomic nuclear war, spiritual war. It's a fight to the death, so it's very wise that we get trained. I have a video that I want to show you this morning that will give us a little more understanding of the significance of this, of this warfare and a way to help us win. So, Larry, if you would play this video, and if you would turn it up a little bit, we need to have a little volume with, us, with this video because we need to let this thing rock this house a little bit. So I want to play this video, then we'll come back and talk more about what warfare requires. Where's our war cry? We don't even know that we're at war. We don't understand that we're in hostile territory. This isn't a time of peace. It's against the principalities and the powers that are puppeteering the people. And we are in a position to see souls set free. This has been the ancient war cry throughout all the generations of the Hebrew nation. Rock! Kasak! Where does it come from? Kasak, this is the Hebrew, the rock-like oomph of the spiritually zealous heart, the game face of a mighty man, tenacity of soul, the gritting of the teeth of the spirit-inspired warrior, and the bearing of those teeth to the enemy. Kasak is possessing a resolute and growling resolve for the glory of God. A flush of spiritual fervor, a tensing of all a soldier's muscles. There's a kasak. We don't have that spiritually. We should. We don't. Because we don't know what we're engaged with. Did you know that you have the armory of heaven? That you have everything you need for life and godliness to push the enemy forces back? And so when you hear kasak... Your knuckles spiritually should immediately turn white. And you should find yourself gritting your spiritual teeth with a belligerence against the enemy. He goes down. There are souls that must be saved. Okay, that's just Kasak. The Hebrew statement is Barak Kasak. However, in the Bible, where that came from, it's Kasak Imas. The other word that goes with it, Imas. It's heavenly audacity. It's rushing headlong into the most hazardous and impossible battles without pausing to consider the impossibilities. Who had a moss in the Bible? David against Goliath? That's some serious moss. Okay, he's rushing headlong against the Goliath. It's like, David, you might want to think about this a little bit. No, I'm not weighing the impossibilities. This is for my God. It's a confidence in victory even before the field is taken. It's lambs moving with liquid ferocity straight into the lion's lair. How about the three that overheard him in the cave of the Tula? Says, oh, for a cup of cool water from the well of Bethlehem. Those guys had a moss. They go run out, break through a garrison of Philistines to grab a cup of cool water and then bring it back through the garrison. They're being hunted by Philistines the whole time trying not to spill a cup of water. That's the moss. Mere men and women on earth are eaten up by the enemy. However, we're not just mere men and women of this earth. We are redeemed. 
We were bought with a price, and we've been changed into the body of Christ. Amongst these swift-footed, all-believing, super-conquering, prevailing faith in the Lord of battles. What happens to the world if Christians once again get Kasach and Amats? You know what the apostles had after Pentecost? Something came into them. What was it? You can say it very simply. Kasach and Amats. Spirit of God. He came in to win. He came in to turn this world on its head. Moses' last gasp. This is his great speech before the promised land, which he never got to enter into. And he's laying out the ground rules for the kingdom that is about to be established across that Jordan River. Be strong and of good courage. Kasach, Amos, fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that does go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Kasach, Amos, be strong and of good courage. For thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord has sworn unto their fathers to give them. And thou shalt cause them to inherit it. Well, what's happening there? The men and women of God are coming to take what was purchased. The promise. You are surrounded by 31 hostile empires. You know, that's what they were headed into. 31 empires on the other side of that Jordan River. 31. This is where we are at as the church of Jesus Christ. Yet we are there without a war cry. Let's understand that we are out to win for the glory of Jesus Christ. And even if we die, we win. doesn't matter what happens to our bodies. We obey, God wins. Now suddenly we're crossing. Joshua is the same name for Jesus in the New Testament, by the way. Yeshua. This is the Savior, the man of salvation, who has come in to bring us into the inheritance. Be strong and good courage. For unto this people shall thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swore unto their fathers to give them. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Rock the sock. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Rock the sock, Israel. Rock the sock, men and women of God Almighty. All the powers of earth and hell that come against your soul, and all the powers of earth and hell that are puppeteering the lost masses, you hit them square in the teeth. And you show love to this world, to anyone who would spit in your face, you serve them and you love them in return, and say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Rock a sock, Israel. Warfare requires a choice to be made. Compromise is not one of the choices. Let me say that again. Warfare requires a choice to be made, and compromise is not one of the choices. The life that God requires of his followers does not include a compromise with Satan's plan. When we're instructed to take up our cross and follow Jesus, there isn't an area of compromise in that statement. We see Jesus having a disagreement with Peter, one of his most loyal and faithful supporters. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 through 27, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now, isn't that interesting that Peter, who is Jesus' most loyal follower, is just trying to save Jesus' life? He's not out to tell Jesus that he's a bad guy. He's just saying, no, Lord, this is not going to happen. They will not take your life. We're not going to let that happen. We're going to stand between them and you, and we're going to protect you. And Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. 
So sometimes in our exuberance, we get the things of men confused with the things of God. And that normally comes with the area of compromise because Peter didn't see the Lord's mission. And I find this interesting that Jesus had to be stern with Peter so that Peter would not, so that he would get the point. Peter certainly wasn't against Jesus. He just didn't, he just didn't understand the true mission Jesus was on. And I'm sure Peter didn't mean to be offensive to Jesus. I'm sure he didn't, he didn't, wasn't angry. He wasn't trying to up one Jesus. I just think he just didn't have or couldn't process the information that Jesus was telling them because Jesus was telling them all along that what was going to happen. And Peter and the other disciples, by the way, just didn't get it. They just couldn't get it. So Jesus' response had to be quick and deliberate. Jesus could not accept any compromises in his life at this time. He didn't come to live and set up an earthly kingdom. He came to die to establish an eternal kingdom, and any form of compromise in that plan wouldn't allow that to happen. Jesus never accepted compromise as an option to his mission. And here's the kicker. Neither should we. Neither should we. If the Lord doesn't accept compromise, then why should I accept compromise? So Jesus had to be sure that Peter understood that. And what I find so comforting in these exchanges with Jesus and his disciples, which are his hand-picked men, by the way, that when they just didn't get it, and we talked about that a few weeks ago with the alabaster jar. Do you remember that example? where the woman went in and broke the very expensive perfume, the very expensive jar of, of, of very nice-smelling nard or perfume and, and anointed Jesus with that, and the disciples were indignant about that. Do you remember that? Do you remember why? They didn't get it. They didn't get it. But what's so encouraging about that, though, is when they don't get it, Jesus doesn't give up on them. He doesn't throw them out and say, okay, I'm going to get another 12 disciples because you guys just aren't good enough. No, it's not anything about them being good enough or not good enough. It's about Jesus' love and mercy and compassion towards them to make them what they need to be. And that gives me encouragement because Jesus isn't going to throw me out either, he's, but he's going to work with me and he's going to develop me and he's going to put me through some tests and he's going to put me through some discipline and he's going to work my life so that my life can get lined up to be useful to him. He doesn't throw me away and say, I'm going to get another guy unless I want to walk away. Unless I, choose to take, unless I choose to compromise. If I choose to compromise and say, Lord, it's not worth it, I'm not going to battle, then he will find somebody else. His plan is not going to live and die on me or you. But if you're not willing to compromise, if you're not willing to, to, to give in to the enemy's plan, the devil, then Jesus isn't going to give up on you. Understand that. He's going to put as much into you as you're willing to put into him. He will develop you, he will train you, he will work with you, he will put you through the ringer so that you can be the best soldier you can be. It kind of sounds like the Marines, doesn't it? Yeah. So continuing on in this passage, we see this as a great opportunity also that Jesus uses as a teaching experience for the rest of, rest of his disciples and ultimately to us today in our life where there is also no room for compromise with the world. Continue reading then in Matthew chapter 16, picking up at verse 24. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the, man, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Taking up our cross is just the beginning of our life of salvation. I don't see any sign of compromise in that scripture. I don't see any sign there where Jesus is giving us a way to compromise his truth. Any way that he can compromise his righteousness. Any way for us to compromise his holiness and if we're still going to win the battle. We don't take up his cross partially. 
We take up his cross and we follow him with all diligence to the best of our human ability. And then we have to rest on him, his spiritual life, to pull us through because we can't do this on our own. We cannot do this on our own. Taking up our cross is just the beginning of our life of salvation. And this does not line up with the American dream. It doesn't match up at all with that. The American dream viewpoint of Christian living is having God's blessings, his abundance with us and for us because we deserve to have God's blessing. We deserve it because we are what we are, what we think we are. And that we can live in opulence and self-indulgence because we have Jesus in our heart. And, and that becomes, that's all true, it's all true. But if we don't look at it in a proper perspective, we soon find ourselves in a life of compromise because compromise is the heart of the American dream and in our attempts to gain everything I can while I have the opportunity. I find myself being tempted to do whatever it takes to get what I want, whatever it takes to get me to that point in my job, whatever it takes to get me where I want to get. And I see it a lot in politicians. God loves politicians. We need good Christian politicians. We need good Christian men that will stand up for their beliefs and not be compromised. But I tell you, I feel for these guys. If we're going to pray for people, we need to pray for our politicians. We need to pray for those in government over, over us because they have a tough road to hoe because they live in a life of compromise all the time. There's pork barrel everywhere. You do this, I do this. World of compromise. It's a common theme in our culture today. But it's so contrary to a scriptural viewpoint what I see in these verses that we've read is a life of giving ourselves up for the sake of others. I see giving up my rights so that others can live in spite of what it might cost me. I see putting my rights below the rights of others so that they will have the best chance of succeeding in this life and beyond. But, you know, I see and I recognize that this American dream philosophy, this version of greatness that we have in the American perspective is not a new thing. In fact, Jesus dealt with it. It goes even back to the time of Jesus' days within his own group, within his own disciples. And Jesus had to deal with this. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 through 28. It said, Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with their sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, this is the mother of the two of the boys, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. For these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard this, the other ten disciples, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I read all that to keep it in context because the last part is what I wanted to emphasize. Just as the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve. Of all people, of all men that walked this earth, who had, the, who had most right to be served? Jesus. And what did he do? He became the servant. He's the one that washed the feet. He's the one that put all of his rights down for the sake of others. He's the one that did not do anything that would cause another person to question. He is the model of leadership through the model of servitude. That's who we are to follow. That's who we are to be. We are to be Christ-like in our service of leadership in servitude no matter what level of service or no, no matter what level of leadership that you're in. Getting back to spiritual warfare that we're in, we must understand that warfare means that there will be casualties. 
If God wasn't intending us to be in conflict to the death of a spiritual foe, then why would he instruct us to put on the full armor of God? To put on spiritual armor means that we are going to be in a spiritual battle. And when you go into battle, you better be prepared to win. Otherwise, why even begin? You better not go there thinking that you're going to play tiddlywinks. You better go there with the desire and the fortitude to win. If we recognize our enemy to be the spiritual foe that he is, meaning Satan, understand his desire is to destroy you eternally. He isn't interested in a minor setback in your spiritual life. He is after a fatal blow that will destroy your spiritual man for all eternity. Let's just understand what his goal is. Let's just understand his mission. His mission in life is not to be our friend. Our mission in life is destruction, total annihilation. So we need to be adamant regarding our position against him. And this is where compromise of the things of God are not acceptable. In order to destroy you, Satan doesn't need to kill you physically or even make you kill anyone else. All he has to do is to convince you to begin to compromise the truth of God's word and he will be slowly sucking the spiritual life out of you. All he has to do is convince you to make minor adjustments to your spiritual walk, to distract you a little bit here and a little bit there, and make it a slow migration of compromise, compromise after compromise, slowly working at your, at, at, at your, your conscience, slowly searing the, the God-given thing that was to help you keep on line. All he's got to do is to keep you from hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit, to convince you one day at a time that all this holy living stuff that you've heard about in church really isn't necessary. That's what he'll do. That's the way he'll work. He won't come at you with a big blow. He'll come at you slowly and gradually, and he'll just work you down. He'll work you down, compromise over compromise. And he'll say, well, after all, God loves you, and God doesn't want you to go to hell, so he won't let you do anything that would really compromise that because you're a Christian. My gosh, you've been a Christian all your life. You're on the right track. Just keep on going. Just keep on doing what you want. It'll all work out in the end. See, Satan doesn't want us to recognize that we're in a battle. He would rather lull us to sleep with a world of peace-loving compromises that are more intent of keeping everyone happy Growing a large church based on messages that everybody's okay, everybody's going to be there, no reason to get upset, no really reason to set any standards, because those standards just cause people to stumble. Rather, just let those go, and let's just chase after the Lord, and it'll be all right because God loves you. And that sounds really good, doesn't it? It sounds really sweet. It sounds really nice to hear that, and it sounds really good. But God gives us standards in his word that are uncompromisable. And when we start to compromise God's standards, what, enemy, what camp are we playing in? Who are we really solving at that time? Who are we really serving at that time? Compromise will destroy us. In all of that discussion, there wasn't one mention of keeping my life lining up with God's word or keeping my heart filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. In all of that little tirade that I just went through, it was all about me living the way that feels good to me and the way that I think is best for me to live, allowing a little compromise to sneak in, a little bit here and a little bit there. Others are doing it. Other churches are doing it. Others in our churches are doing it. So why can't I do it? And all of a sudden, I find myself lining up with people rather than lining up with God's word. God's word is a solid foundation. Where do we ever find in Scripture that we have the right to compromise Scripture to match the lifestyle that we want that makes our life what we want it to be? I just don't see it. I just don't see the Scripture line giving us that right. In fact, when I look at both, at both uh, Old and New Testaments, I see very stern warnings to us to be sure that we're lining up with God's word and not allowing the compromise to sneak in. And a great example of this story is a, or of this is a, is a story in the Old Testament that was talking about what we talked about a few, week, a few weeks ago when we talked about the Promised Land, about how God was taking the Israelites to the River Jordan and they could go over to the Promised Land. Understand that the Promised Land, in fact, that was actually shown in this video, this Promised Land was, was, in, was in, uh, encamped by 31 adversaries, 31 strong cities and 
and nationalities that were going to be against the Israelites as they went into the Jordan or into the Canaan land. This was not moving into heaven, by the way. This was moving into a land that they were going to take, but they were going to have to take it in many ways by force because God was giving it to them. So God gave them some very direct commands to that. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 12, the first five verses, These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess for as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. I don't see any area here where the Lord said compromise with them. Do you? Is there any way in here that we could read a compromise? It says, you must not worship the Lord your God their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among you, all your tribes, to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. Wow. See, the Lord has given us a very direct plan. Do not allow a compromise to come in in the way you worship me. I will not accept compromise, says the Lord. I will not accept any other way to worship me other, unless, un, unless it's the way that I'm telling you. I don't see a God that is willing to, to be worshipped by people any way they want to or to share their worship with any other gods with little g's that people make up in our own minds. I see a God that is very much about true worship without any sense of compromise with a worldly set of standards or norms. In fact, it's happening more and more in our culture. Just the other night, Chris and I were watching the news, and in the world of political jockeying for popular votes, the comment was made that it's time for Bible thumpers to get with the times we're living in. That's what the news said. It's time for Bible thumpers, that's us, by the way. Are you a Christian? Are you a spirit-filled Christian? then you're a Bible thumper. It's time, though, our world says, it's time that we get with it. It's time that we get with the times we're living in. It's time for us to put down our view of the Word of God and the standards that it's wanting us to live up to and put those down and begin to compromise with the society. It's time, they say, that we start living in 2012. Now, do you think it makes any difference to God what year we're living in when it comes to living according to his word or not? Do you think he cares what the time is? Do you think it matters if we're living in 2012 or the year 0012? It doesn't make any difference. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Do you think technology, because I have an iPhone, it's a smartphone, and I can check my emails wherever I'm at in the world, do you think, and, and, and all of the other technology, do you think that spiritually enlightens me more? That I don't, listen to, I don't have to listen to God's Word? Just because we're smarter, does that make us more spiritually enlightened? I don't get it. No, it doesn't. It doesn't give us any realm, any reason that we can compromise God's standards. How small do people think that this God is, that he's affected by the society in which we live? How small of a God would that be that would be affected by our society? See, it doesn't make any difference if everyone is compromising the standards of God's words. We're all going to be judged by it. We're all going to be judged by God's word, by a just and fair God that doesn't grade on a class curve. He doesn't look at the society around us and say, okay, well, you're a little bit better than that guy, so I guess you're okay. You're a little bit better than that guy. No, he doesn't. He grades on a curve that is established by the Word of God. And that is good news for us, folks. That is good news because that tells us what we have to line up to. It gives me the sense of purpose. It gives me a sense of hope because I know that if I follow God's Word, then there is no risk of judgment for me. If I had to wait and saw, and, and saw what society was doing, if I had to wait and measure my life against what other people are doing and then line myself up with them, I would never know where the standards were at. 
God's Word gives us the hope. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the message of hope. And when we line ourselves up with God's Word and we do the things that God's asking us to do, it gives me joy and freedom and peace and compassion for others. Because then I want others to line up with God's Word. I want others to join me with heaven, in heaven. And I want others to enjoy the freedoms that we have when we find God's Word as a blessing that it is. But, you know, God gives us some tests sometimes. He gives us some tests, I think, to test our true love for Him. When opportunities of compromise come my way in this area of, right, of these gray areas of right and wrong, God gives us a test. I'm going to show you an example of that test. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13, the verse four verse, first four verses in the Message Translation, it says this. When a prophet or visionary gets up, gets up in your community and gives out a miracle sign or wonder, and the miracle sign or wonder that he gave out happens, and he says, let's follow other gods. In parentheses, you can read this. These are gods you know nothing about. In other words, this is not the true God. Okay? So this false guy comes in, this false prophet comes in, and he does a miracle, he does a wonder, and the miracle sign or wonder that he gave out, and, he happen, and it happens, and he says, let's follow other gods. Let's worship them. Don't pay any attention to what that prophet or visionary says. God, your God, is testing you to find out if you totally love him with everything you have in you. You are to follow only God, your God. Hold him in deep reverence. Keep his commandments. Listen obediently to what he says. Serve him. Hold on to him for dear life. Now, what does that mean for us today? I believe that God gives us tests just like he said he gave these people a test. That's the word of God. I didn't make it up. You can read it. That God, our God, God, your God, is testing you to find out if you totally love him or not. Okay, in this example, some false prophets came in that did miracles. And we know that happens. I'll give you a quick example we know that happens. Because in, in Moses, when Moses went to Pharaoh... One of the first things Moses did was he threw his staff down on the ground and his staff turned into a snake. And that was supposed to prove to Pharaoh that Moses has got God's power. But what did, what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh said, hey, all my wizards here, all my, my advisors, throw your sticks down. And when they threw their sticks down, what happened to their sticks? They became like snakes. They did the same thing Moses' did. But Moses' snake ate, no other, ate their snakes. So God still prevailed. The point is, the enemy has the ability to do supernatural things. He has the ability to do things. He, comprom or he, he, um, he copies God. He can't create, but he can copy. And so what he did here, in this example right here that we're talking about, coming back to Deuteronomy, this false teacher, this false prophet went in, this visionary got into their community, did some miraculous signs, and then he said, come follow me, come follow my gods. And God allowed that to happen because God wanted to know, who do you really love? Do you love the miracle or do you love the giver of the miracle? And that's the difference. In our life today... I think that's why God gives us some gray areas in the Bible. And I wish he wouldn't have done that. I wish he would have made all the areas black and white. That way we would know exactly where to line up. But I think sometimes he gives us some areas of compromise as a way for me to test my love for him. Some areas of compromise. Now, what are some of those areas of compromise? In our world today, we, may, we have lots of opportunities to follow the temporary false gods of our immediate satisfaction and selfish pleasures. We have them more than ever. And it may be more comfortable and relaxing for me to sit home and watch TV rather than get up and come to Sunday night praise and prayer or Wednesday night Bible study or, or even for that matter to shut off the TV and pick up my own Bible and read it. That's a compromise. That's a great area of compromise. The Lord is saying, what's more important to you? What's more important to you in that area? Or it may be more fun and relaxing and entertaining to spend my free time working on my hobbies rather than volunteering my time to help out a neighbor across town. That's a compromise area. That's an area of testing to say, do you, do you love me? How much do you love me? 
Or it may be more fun and socially acceptable to give in the peer pressure and participate in the pleasures of this world and the culture we live in than to say, no, I have an established set of standards and boundaries that I'm going to hold to and I'm going to keep my life, spiritual life pure and my prayer life effective. You see, when I have those areas of compromise come in, it may be sexual, it may be how far can I go with my boyfriend, girlfriend. Because the Bible doesn't really say how far is too far. What does it say? It says sex is wrong. Okay, well, where is it? Well, if you want to play the game, so how close can I get to it before I'm wrong? Let me ask the question. Why would you want to play that game? See, that's the area where the Lord's testing you. How much do you love me? How much do you love me? How much do you want to chase after me? That's the heart issue, folks, of what we're supposed to be as living as Christians. How much do you want to follow me? And all the other areas that are gray in the Scripture... Obviously, drinking is one of the gray areas. Certainly it is. How much do you love me? How much do you want to line up with my word? See, God gives us tests that way to prove our love to him. If you did it to the Old Testament people, why wouldn't you do it to you and I today? See, and when we have a test, understand that he gives us the ability to choose. What's the point of a test if I don't have the ability to choose? Or another question, what's the point of the test if there's not a right or wrong answer? I, he, he gives me free choice. He gives me free will. I have the opportunity to decide if I'm going to. Otherwise, it's not a test. And he also gives, and also, God's just answer is the right answer, not mine. What's the purpose of a test if there isn't a right answer? So what we're calling us to do today is a holy lifestyle, a holy and righteous lifestyle that lines up with the Lord, with the Word of God in all areas, in all areas of sin, as small as they may be or as large as they may be, and I'm lining my life up to God's Word as close as I can, and I'm willing to let myself be the servant. And I'm willing to, I'm willing to submit unto God's direction and God's discipline. See, compromise in a time of battle is death. Compromise in a time of battle to death. If you're going into the battle willing and able to ever believe a compromise is right, you might as well not go in at all. Could you imagine our, our armed forces today going in to face the people they're facing right now in the Middle East? Could you imagine? I'll I, I tell you what, if my son was going into battle... I would say, son, don't compromise with the enemy. If you see a gun pointed at you, don't compromise. You take the first shot. See, there is no compromise in battle. I don't want my kids to compromise in battle. And what's happening, dads and moms, spiritually here, when I compromise my spiritual life as a father, I'm saying, guys, it's okay to compromise kids. And when I do that, they might as well be pointing a gun at my kid's head, and I might as well say, go ahead and shoot them. Because compromise and battle don't mix. They don't mix. We either on God's side or we're not on God's side. There is no gray area here. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me this inspiration. Dads, do you understand that we need kazats? We need some amats. We need that. We need the amats that David had when he faced Goliath. Because he was a little boy facing a huge giant, and there was no way he and his ability could do it unless he had the amats of God that said, David, you go in. It's impossible for you to win. But if you go in with me, you'll win. That's amats. That's why I love that video so much. I've watched it five times. It's amats. Dads, moms, understand the power that we have to protect our family would we put on the full armor of God to take our stand against the spiritual powers that are out to destroy your family? Understand that. Understand your responsibility to put on the full armor of God and to take your stand against that. You are not one to compromise. If you're up, a, if you're up against a particular issue of right or wrong that you don't know if it's really marginal or right, do you understand the legal claim that you give the enemy in your life every time you decide that compromise is a better way? Do you understand the legal claim that you're giving to the enemy when you compromise his standards versus God's standards? The best way to keep peace with people 
is to let them know exactly where you stand in accordance with God's word and that you are not going to compromise. By you taking a stand on the side of righteousness, let everyone know, including the enemy, including the devil, that you are a godly person and for that, even though they may initially resent and they mock you, in the end, you will be respected for your authentic position and stance and the enemy will lose when you take a stand for righteousness. Please know the enemy is not interested in compromising. He's not interested in compromising. He's only interested in the kill. He's only interested in the kill. He won't stop with a little compromise. He won't stop until you've compromised away your eternal soul. It's only a matter of time. You give a little, he'll take it. And it won't be long and he'll require a little more. And since he knows you're already willing to compromise, he won't give up. He'll keep coming. He'll keep coming. Maybe you think you can take a stand. But once you've given in, in your own physical ability, once you've given in, it's only going to be that much harder to stop. And once the enemy knows you're a compromiser, he's only going to turn up the heat more. Now here's the question of the hour. Does that mean that we don't have any hope of winning? Absolutely not. We are the winner. We will win. We have the spiritual authority on our side God, the creator of the universe, Jesus, the forgiver of our sins, is on our side if I'm not a compromiser. I will win, and you will win, and you will save your family, and you will save your society around you if you don't compromise God's word. You will win. That's a positive word. That's a word that we should be standing up and we should be saying, Amatz! Kazak! That's it. That's the war cry. We will win, but we cannot go into this life with an area of compromise on anything. Oh, thank you, Jesus. This is where we need to come to Jesus in an attitude of true, heartfelt repentance. He will forgive you, and He will restore you if you are willing to let Him help you. Are you willing? Do you want to win this fight that we're in? Do you? It's your choice. Today's the day, and now is the time to ask God for his help. Whoever asks, he will help. It's not too late. It's not too late. Come to Jesus and ask, and that's all it takes. You can say, Lord, I've compromised long enough. I've compromised long enough. I'm putting on my spiritual armor. Jackie, if you would come, please. I'm putting on my spiritual armor. Lord, and now I am going to take my stand against the enemy. I am not going to allow a compromise to rule my home. I am not going to allow a compromise to rule my thoughts. I am not going to allow a compromise to be my stand against the enemy. I need to do that. I need to do that. If we go back and look at verse 11 again in Ephesians chapter 6, our text. It says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do you understand who the foe is? The foe is not your son or your daughter or your wife or your husband. That's not the foe. The foe is against spiritual authorities against the rulers, against the authorities of powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. And we are therefore instructed to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, not when it comes, not if it comes, I'm sorry, when it comes, the day of evil is coming. In fact, it may be at hand today. It may be at hand today. So that when you have done everything else to stand, stand your ground. And after you've done everything else to stand, stand firm then. There is no compromise there, folks. There is no compromise there. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. So this morning, as we prepare to take communion, where are you at in a life of compromise? Where is your life? Are you compromising things away? Are you compromising your spiritual heritage away? Are you compromising the, what the Lord has got planned for you? Listen, this is not a hard word, folks. 
This is a word of truth. This is a word of freedom. This is a word that that should be shouted from every mountaintop and every rooftop in this community and in this world. Because if we were shouting this word, people would be coming to their their faces and and knees and, and repentance, and we would have salvation, and we would have true freedom in the word of God. Listen. The Holy Spirit this morning is fighting for your soul. Around us right now, understand what's happening. Spiritually around us right now, there's warfare. There's warfare. And if your heart, and if in your heart, if you're feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit, if you're feeling that, then give in to it. Give in to it. Do not put up a hedge against the Lord. Do not put up a hedge against the Lord. If you close your eyes with me, please. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this word. Lord Jesus, I know that we've all compromised. And I'll be the first one to admit, Father, of my compromises. But Lord, I come to you with a quick heart to ask me, ask you to forgive me of my sins. Lord, to have a King David heart, this man, this little boy that had the amats to stand up to, to, to Goliath, also had compromise later on in his life. And when he was confronted with his compromises, he did the right thing. And he said, God, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. And that's what it's all about today. It's about the grace of God to say, I'm sorry. So Holy Spirit, I I beg you this morning to please do your work today in the hearts of people in in this community today, in this church. This morning, if you have this heart of compromise and if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart to say, I need to say I'm sorry. Would you just raise your hand? Would you just tell me? Would you just, I see that. I see that hand. Be honest with yourself. I see it. I see the other hand. Be honest with yourself. I see that. This is the Lord fighting for you, folks. This is not the Lord fighting against you. Understand who's fighting here. Understand who's going to win. Understand that. Amen. Would you stand with me? Hallelujah. For all those that raised your hand this morning, would you pray this prayer? Dear Jesus, I am so sorry for my sin. I am so sorry for the times that I've compromised my life. I am so sorry for the times that I've let you down, Jesus. And I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you that you loved me so much that you convicted my spirit this morning that you gave me a nudge in my heart and I thank you for that. And for that reason today, I can now celebrate the table of communion with a clean heart, with a pure heart and a heart of resolve that I'm not going to commit those sins again, that I'm going to move away from that area of compromise in my life. And for that, I am so thankful. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.